Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me in Fukuoka is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and as professional drinkers, we try to be constantly aware of the hazards of our job. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Steven, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Excited to start season three. It's uh, obviously at the beginning of a year is a time of reflection and that sort of thing. And it's, it's fun to think about what we're going to cover this year and what our topics will be. So do you have any stories about uh, <laughs> resolutions? I know last year you had a big one. Any changes this year? Yeah. So I realized, and I don't know if this is my psychology or why this is for me, but I've realized New Year's resolutions work for me, especially as I get older. Last year, I committed to running five kilometers to allow myself to drink one beer. And of course, I had caveats that beer could be any size. If I opened a beer to make a dish and there was some beer left in the can, I could finish that without penalty, that sort of thing. So I had a, a few carve outs, but basically I stuck to it all year. I ran 850 kilometers, which is by far the furthest I've ever run in a year, Nice, which earned me 170 beers. And I drank 169 of them. I had one beer left at the end as the clock strike midnight because my second to last beer of the year was a 13% Imperial Stout. <laughs> and I did not need another beer after that. <laughs> so that's, that's nearly three beers right there. Yeah, that's pretty strong. So realizing that about myself and knowing that I want to constantly improve I want to live healthier. I want to be more active. I want to be more productive. I want to have better relationships with people, all sorts of things, right? I realize resolutions work for me. The other resolution that I was not stated in any of my social media was that I was going to take the stairs at work every day. Mm -hmm. And the exception being if I, if I had to climb the stairs with like a really heavy box or something that was out, I was going to take the elevator, but otherwise I'd, I was going to take the stairs. And I committed to that and I stuck with it and I climbed the stairs every day. I took the elevator three times all year and that's when I had heavy loads. So I was quite proud of myself for sticking with that as well. It's only on the third floor. So it was a couple of flights, but that went from like almost zero stair climbing the year before to only stair climbing in 2022. Yeah. And that created a habit. Now that 2023 has started, I'm not going back to the elevator. I just, when I get to work, I naturally go up the stairs. And that's healthier. Oh, absolutely. My knees aren't always happy about it, <laughs> but that's what I do. Sure. And so I didn't want to do the 5Ks for a beer again, because that didn't address other drinks. What I was hoping was that that was going to reduce my beer consumption, which was going to reduce my calories and was going to help me lose weight. I gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> I gained almost, almost three kilograms. Why was that? I think a lot of it was muscle. Oh, uh, fair. Of course. From being stronger from running, right? Yeah. I built core muscle and I built my leg muscles up from the running, but I switched to cocktails. And we'll talk about the science behind that a little bit later, but all of that sugar that is a natural part of cocktails is competing with the alcohol and adding body weight. Sure. In certain situations. We'll talk about what that is. So my alcohol resolution is I am going to track every drink I drink this year. Okay. Not what it was or anything like that. And it's not to judge myself. It's to know how much I'm drinking. How many drinks am I having a day, a week, a month, a year so that I understand how much I'm consuming because I've never done that before. My physical fitness resolution is I now walk 20 minutes after every single meal and I have yet to miss that so far. That's a great habit to get into, obviously, for multiple reasons, one of them just being to help your general digestion and make sure you don't suffer a nasty bout of heartburn before you go to bed. Yeah, I think you've made some very healthy choices once again. Both of us, we have significant occupational hazards in terms of just the amount of alcohol that our home offices are awash in. And that's not that we 
are just drinking for fun, although we do that too. But if you were in the same position as us and received as many unsolicited alcohol samples per week as we do, then you would probably be under threat of imminent divorce as well. <laughs> um, it's a, a lot of booze coming through here. I've taken to now telling people not to send samples. People are like, would you like a sample? I'm like, no, no, absolutely not. I don't want any more samples. Please don't. <laughs> we don't have space to store them anymore. Sure. But there's always a reason for the two of us in particular to crack something open, try it, write down our thoughts. And that adds up. And I think your idea to count units is absolutely a great way, especially as a, a psychological mechanism to cause you to think more about each drink. And I think that's a really good headspace to be in, mm -hmm. to make it count. And there's currently a, I guess you could call it a buzzword. It, I wouldn't call it a movement necessarily, but it's this whole concept of mindful drinking, mm -hmm. which is sounds kind of nebulous and it sounds very um, tree huggery, but it's, uh, it really is just about the way I understand it anyway, is focus on each individual drink, pay attention to how much you've had and slow down. Right. And this actually goes hand in hand with something that you and I have been saying for years, and that is sip slowly, sip honkaku. That is what you should do at all times, in my feeling. We need to choose quality over quantity. Absolutely. Life is too short for anything else, in my own opinion, and I know you agree with me, and hopefully more and more people out there come over to our side of the argument. But I digress. Yeah, um, no, I think, yeah, I think so, that's a great point. If I can just elaborate on your samples thing, I've learned to pour them out. Yeah, alcohol abuse. <laughs> Once I've evaluated something, if it's not something I would drink at home, it goes down the drain. Yeah, we do get some doozies sent over <laughs> that are just like, oh, wow, who do you think is going to really be into that? Yeah, so maybe if we can science geek out a little bit. Yeah, science it up. How does alcohol actually work? Now, I guess a caveat here is I don't study this sort of thing for a living. I, I study other things, but it's fascinating how alcohol has been part of civilization basically almost since its start. Mm -hmm. There's a theory that civilization began in order to make booze. Mm -hmm. Alcohol has been part of human civilization basically from the beginning, and yet there's so much we don't know about how it works. There is very, very little that's known about so many of the effects of alcohol consumption, other than the fact that it can be pretty dire for society as at large. The pathway for other psychoactive drugs are pretty straightforward. Alcohol, on the other hand, is this sneaky little bastard that goes through this series of transformations, and it affects everything in the body from head to toe, including, of course, your liver, your kidneys, your heart, all the way out to the extremities and everything in between. Yeah, it's been fascinating to dig into this. We have to give credit to the book Proof by Adam Rogers, which is an absolutely fantastic dig into the science behind alcohol, not just how it's made, but what it does to us and what the effects are and really, really approachable easy to read, won multiple awards when it came out, a really fantastic book. I recommend it to anybody who's interested. But basically, alcohol inhibits the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. Glutamate's job is to encourage brain activity and energy levels. It gets us excited. It gets us moving. It keeps us active. And it inhibits that. It, it suppresses it. So you have less glutamate activity. So it slows you down, right? But it also activates GABA receptors. Now, GABA is, and I'm probably going to butcher this because these words are unfamiliar to me, but gamma aminobutric acid. And GABA's job is to keep us from feeling too excited all the time. It inhibits the release of enkephalin, which triggers our opioid receptors. So you've got the inhibition of glutamate, making our brain more relaxed while increasing the release of opioids in our brain. So we're getting a dopamine and a serotonin hit, and that's all from the very first drink. So no wonder this stuff goes down so easily, right? Absolutely. It's the perfect storm 
of comfort and relaxation. And unfortunately, this is why it's sometimes hard to stop. And I'm sure everybody has this experience. Our body wants to keep that feeling going. And of course, to keep feeling comfortable, to keep feeling relaxed. But unfortunately, once you cross a certain threshold, it's no longer a harmless buzz. There are absolutely risks. No doubt. The acute effects on the brain are powerful. And with enough alcohol, we relatively quickly lose motor control, memory, and other sensory changes. That's why it's so dangerous to get behind the wheel of a car or even ride a bicycle when you're drunk because you're impaired. Yeah. And memory lapses are another issue, of course. You may have done or said something that you legitimately don't remember when you were drinking, which can be either embarrassing or um, problematic to your relationships or far worse. Sure. You know, this, of course, has never happened to me, at least not that I can remember. Um, <laughs> Same for me. <laughs> something that's sort of insidious is that alcohol really messes with our emotions. We've all heard of people described as a happy drunk or an angry drunk or a sad drunk. Yeah. Those are all artificial emotions created by the effect that alcohol is having on our brain. It's kind of like money, isn't it? Maybe it just makes you more of who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. Overconsumption can absolutely lead directly to violence towards others. We've seen it a million times or even self-harm. This for me is what is most troubling in the acute phase of alcohol consumption. Of course, drunk driving accidents are horrible, especially if somebody else is injured or killed. Yeah. But intentional violence toward others or self-harm driven by drinking is such an awful end for what should have been a relaxed and enjoyable experience. And we haven't even gotten into hangovers yet, man. That's freaking horrible, too. That's in jest, of course. But hangovers are another, you know, oh, I'll never drink again moment. I'm sure many people listening have had that before, only to start drinking again within the next fortnight at the most. There's just so many consequences to really going past that first couple of drinks. And that's the entire impetus for this show. Unfortunately, nobody really knows how hangovers work exactly. But there is a prevailing theory, which I think has some merit, and that's that the congeners in alcohol mess with us in different ways. And congeners are the flavor and aroma compounds that make it taste and smell like what it tastes and smells like. Mm -hmm. So we want those. Mm -hmm. But each different kind of drink has different congeners. And, so, and then each different kind of congener can have different effects on different people. And then, right. of course... Dehydration is a big part of that because alcohol is a diuretic. It makes you uh, have to use the, you know, have, have to urinate. And then you need to replenish those electrolytes and, and, and those fluids. But yeah, you, you got to hydrate all the time. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. And this is really hard for most people to do while they're drinking is to, to make sure that you're taking in at least a commensurate amount of H2O to all the ethanol that's going into your body. And actually, I mean more than just the pure volume of ethanol. I'm talking about the size of your drink. Mm -hmm. You need to try to exceed that in volume with just straight water. And another thing that we have over here, and I know there are sports drinks all over the world. There's a good one in Japan that's not, it's uh, a lot of people will swear by the electrolytes in a, what are the names of the Gatorade Powerade. And I'm sure there's a bunch of new stuff that has appeared since you and I lived in the States, but it is something where the hydration aspect of this entire thing, if you're worried about hangovers, if you're worried about a lot of the negative effects of ethanol consumption, then water and other hydration solutions are part of the battle here. They are your friend. Yeah, no doubt that hydration is key. And another, another thing that I think people overlook or don't really think about is to avoid sugar as much as possible. When you're drinking, try to avoid any additional sugar intake. And this can be challenging for people who like cocktails because cocktails are generally loaded with sugar. That's why they're sweet. Yeah. But your liver has a really hard time processing alcohol and sugar simultaneously. And I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later, but that's just another thing is if you want to reduce the severity of your hangover and give your body the ability to recover more easily, sugar and alcohol don't, shouldn't mix. Yeah. No, no champon as they say here in Japan, which is kind of everything, but the kitchen sink in terms of food and that, you know, champon nabe, but 
that's the same with not ex- mixing in extra, well, to use the word again, mixers, things that add sugar and other things because of the the complex interactions between all of these constituents of the of the beverage make it harder for your body to process. It's the same as if you you start with a beer and then you move to cocktails and then you have a glass or two of wine and then you have some whiskey and a cognac that complicates things for everything inside your body that is attempting to do what's best for you. And that is to break everything down as quickly as possible, get it out of your bloodstream and out of your body. And if you go too quickly or you drink too much, your body has other mechanisms for, for getting the stuff the hell out of there. So, and, and we are familiar with that and it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, no, no question. That's the congener thing as well. That's part of that equation is if you put all these different congeners from all these different drinks into your system, you don't know how they're going to interact with each other, how they're going to react in you individually. And it just makes everything harder as far as, as, as Christopher said, keep getting you taken care of internally. So yeah, it's, it's best not to mix too much. Like if you start drinking something, maybe stay on that and, and mm-hmm. don't switch it up too much. Uh, unfortunately, I think you know, once you have a hangover, there are just so few tried and true uh, remedies. And you usually just need to rehydrate, try to replace those electrolytes and wait for your body to stop punishing you. Yeah. Um, I found personally sort of my most successful usually uh, is that if I wake up and I find I had a hangover is to hydrate, eat something healthy, uh, don't eat fatty foods. Um Mm-hmm. And then I and then I take a nap, and usually I'm in much better shape in less time than if I have to just stay awake and push through the day. Yeah, um, one I I tend to function a little bit more proactively on the prevention side. When I was much younger, when I lived in in Europe, when I lived in the states, I used to go when I was going to the toilet, and I would walk past. So I'd be out drinking with friends and. Of course, there's a certain there was back in the back in the 90s. Um, there was certainly a machismo to to drinking with with the lads, and if you were drinking water in the middle of a session, then you wouldn't be what's the word? You wouldn't be um, commended for it necessarily. And so I used to when I was going to the toilet and I walked past the bar, I would quietly say to somebody, Hey, when I come back out, out of the toilet, can you have a pint of water just waiting for me on the end of the bar? And I would skull that before getting back to the table. And I would do that periodically. And that essentially did two things, which I think are valuable. One is it fills up your stomach a little bit. So it's going to slow you down. And number two, it dilutes everything that's already been put into your body and everything that's coming next. So I think that allowed me to stay upright a lot longer in several situations. It it ended up being the case where I was often one of the last people standing, which has its own drawbacks because you end up taking care of others. Um, but you know, the next day tends to have a lower impact on your overall happiness and ability to function, which is certainly a good thing. I do think there's some value in in replenishing the electrolytes, the minerals, the nutrients that you lost uh, before bed, if you can, if you remember to do it. Maybe shifting gears a little bit, as we talked about before, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of that, right? Our body loves it. And that's something that we then end up craving, right? So overconsumption creates this cascade. And as you get used to drinking, your body expects it as a fast way of feeling good, right? It's It's a shortcut to natural dopamine release, right? So you could get that through your exercise, maybe do yoga, or something else relaxing or something that you enjoy that can release that dopamine for you. But the natural dopamine process is much slower and it's less intense. You're not getting as much of it. It's so hard to get that dopamine hit, right? Your your brain's just holding on to it. But if you go the non-alcohol route, you have to work so hard to get that little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... You know, you you really have to punish yourself to get there. And then your body's like, oh, good job, Patsy on the back. Here's a little squeezed dopamine for you. That's very fleeting. And soon the aches and pains set in. And the only, you know, kind of lasting uh, positive feeling that you get is that you did something to improve your health. But of course, that 
positive effect will wear off after a couple of weeks if you don't repeat that grueling process for that <laughs> yeah. little pinch of dopamine. As I said at the top of the show, I was running regularly, you know, more than I ever run in my life. And I finally experienced the runner's high. I was getting that dopamine hit, right? And that was great. It was really cool. Um, but it's it's at such a lower intensity than you get from this artificial stimulation from from alcohol. And I think it's pretty clear to anybody who's listening, if they have experience, is that an infrequent drinker will get a buzz on less alcohol than a social drinker. Right. Yeah. And a social drinker is going to get a buzz on less alcohol than a regular drinker, who, of course, is going to get a buzz on less alcohol than a problem drinker. Yeah. So I guess the question here is what differentiates a regular drinker from a problem drinker? I've been thinking about this, and I'm not sure that it's really clear cut. And this is certainly not, not a scientific definition, but the way that I think about it personally, a regular drinker is someone who enjoys alcohol frequently, but doesn't allow the alcohol to interfere with their lives personally or professionally. I mean, for centuries, alcohol has been a normal part of everyday life for millions of people. That doesn't mean that it isn't in some ways potentially harmful, but a drink with a meal has been a standard for a very long time in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. I think the trouble starts with the overindulgence and by continuing to increase daily consumption to keep that sweet dopamine and serotonin hit coming at levels that feel good. Yeah, I, that, that kind of leads back to the idea of counting the units that you're imbibing. That's right. In 24 hours. And so a definition of a uh, regular drinker, I think if we're talking about the regular diets, that one of the few diets in the world that has been studied to any degree that would be considered scientific is, of course, the vaunted Mediterranean diet. And mm -hmm. the Mediterranean diet, they've, even, they've gone so far as to chart the lives of people who are very strict with that diet over decades versus those who generally follow the Mediterranean diet because of the food they eat at home and whatever, and then the food that they eat socially or on their own if they live alone. Um, and then people who kind of dip in and out of the Mediterranean diet on a much more haphazard pattern or schedule. And they've been able to show the, you know, not really on purpose. This isn't a diet that was cooked up by, um, you know, a health professional or some ad agency or something or some supplements com company that's trying to sell you something. It's just how they, you know, based on the natural resources that they had available to them in that part of the world. That's the diet that they naturally were, were consuming from generation to generation. And part of that has always been, has always included alcohol. Now, the amount of alcohol is actually surprisingly small. If you're a strict follower or adherent of the Mediterranean diet, we're talking maybe a couple of units per day, if that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Very much is a normal part of the, of the course of the things that cross the kitchen table or the dining room table, but it's really not a lot of alcohol, quite honestly. So a regular drinker for me anyway, and this is purely my opinion, there's, there's very, I'm not, I'm riffing off of the Mediterranean diet anyway, is someone who drinks maybe a couple of units of alcohol per day. And <laughs> so that would make me not a regular drinker. Cause I think on average, when you average everything out and of course, it's Friday today and I haven't had a drink since Monday evening. So that's, I guess this week I may actually be very Mediterranean if I average it out, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm more than I'm a, I'm an occupational drinker, <laughs> which means that in a typical week I might have a day off. And that's always the goal is to have one day with no alcohol whatsoever. But I think I'm somewhere between I'm, I'm way beyond a regular drinker by that definition that I just shared. Yeah, and I guess I'd be a little bit more liberal because I can imagine somebody who has a completely healthy relationship with alcohol who finishes their day with a beer mm -hmm. or a cocktail, then maybe has a glass of wine or two with dinner, and then maybe at some point in the later evening has another drink to wind down like a nightcap. Yeah. And so that would be four units if we're being liberal. Now, you wouldn't want to do that every day. But if you're not going beyond that, that to me doesn't seem like you're getting into the problem territory. Mm -hmm. And I think how I would define us is we are professional drinkers. Right. It's in some ways our job to do this. Yeah. 
and it was interesting as I was exploring ways to track my drinks for the year, I, I signed up for an app called reframe and I've been using it for a couple of weeks now and it has a drink log, but it also gives you a lot of information about the effects of alcohol on the body and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. It does like a daily one or two questions that it wants you to reflect on your relationship with alcohol. Interesting. Because this is really an app that's intended to get people to either reduce their drinking consumption or to stop drinking entirely if that's their goal. But I'm using it as a drink log and and it is helping me understand this relationship a little bit better in addition to the books uh, that I've been reading and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions was like, well, why do you drink? What's your motivation? I was like, because I want to learn about these drinks because I want to research them. And I know that that's not <laughs> the typical answer. It is not. Right. That in itself suggests to me that maybe my relationship with alcohol is uh, healthy, at least in that way. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you think about what's that line between a regular drinker and a problem drinker, I think there's a good test and it's to go cold turkey. Sure. And maybe that's a good reason to do dryuary, right? Which is this, you know, sober a dry January. January. Yep. Yeah. But stop drinking for a few days, for a week or two, for a month. See how your body responds. How do you feel? Do you have any withdrawal symptoms? Mm-hmm. Do you crave a drink? Like, do you find yourself fixated on like, when can I have a drink? When can I start drinking again? Those are probably not good signs, mm-hmm. but if you can stop drinking for a week or so or, or longer without missing it, then you're probably on the regular drinker side of the equation if you regularly partake. And this is probably good to do periodically for more reasons than one. It's always good to check yourself and make sure that you are on the side that it has a relatively healthy relationship with beverage alcohol. But it's also a question of you know, basically we want to make it very clear and and we've always said this, but I'm going to repeat it again. There is no real healthy, hundred <laughs> percent healthy way to drink. That's just marketing. I guess the point that I'm getting to here is there really is no healthy way to assess drinking. There's no way to analyze it as a a healthy behavior in and of itself. I'm sure that's painfully clear to everyone by now. What else it does to the body is also important to to check here. What does it do to our bodies other than give it a buzz? There's really a broad spectrum of things that alcohol can do to the body, and most of them are bad when you're drinking too much. At the first stage, the alcohol goes through the bloodstream and it gets to the liver, breaks it down. In the first stage, it breaks it down into acetaldehyde. Now, this is a highly toxic molecule that, if it's left in the body, can wreak havoc on all kinds of things on cell reproduction. It can cause DNA mutations. It is a potential marker for for some cancer-causing agents. It's just, it's a bad, bad molecule. But fortunately, a healthy liver can then process that molecule pretty efficiently, but it takes a lot of oxygen to do it. And so you're making the liver work harder. And as it's cleaning out the body of the ethanol and, and its byproducts, rather than focusing on clearing out other toxins, is lots of other bad things are being left in the body. Toxins are not being cleared right? because it's working on the alcohol. Yeah. And of course, extreme alcoholism can lead to a fatty liver and even cirrhosis, which can be fatal. Yeah. Clearly, uh, the liver takes the brunt of this, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's not all bad news, of course, because light drinking can actually be, I'm going to put this in air quotes, beneficial to certain parts of our body, maybe our kidneys. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The, the kidneys, actually, there's some some evidence, a pretty solid evidence that, that low levels of alcohol consumption can actually help the kidneys function a little bit more efficiently. So it's not all bad. But of course, with heavy drinking, those can get damaged too. Right. And as you mentioned earlier, it can wreak havoc on the cardiovascular system. It can even affect the lungs and make you more prone to lung infections. Yeah. Respiratory infections, which obviously in in this era of COVID and, and now pretty raging flu and all these other respiratory illnesses, that's not a good thing. And it can even affect the musculoskeletal system if drinking too much. And so it really is no joke. I mean, heavy drinking can mess with virtually your entire body. Yeah. Now, fortunately, the body's really good at healing itself once the alcohol disappears or is reduced to a reasonable level. Now, this is referring more to the short term, maybe we should call them insults to the body. Mm-hmm. The longer term damage that leads to cirrhosis or different types of cancer 
are unfortunately irreversible. So yeah, as we've said, it's not it's not a healthy behavior. This goes without saying. It's better to never get to the heavy drinking stage. You know, you need to cut back as soon as possible if you feel like you're getting anywhere near there. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Not next month. Do it now. Obviously, cutting back can be hard. Any sort of addictive substance is is going to be difficult to to alter. And I guess it's of course. You know, and and it's just like smoking, drinking is habit forming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't discount that at all. I mean, there is certainly for us, I know for both of us, we get done with our evening meetings. And then the first thing you do is you're like, okay, I need a drink. <laughs> and, sure. and that is, that's a habit. Um, do you absolutely need to have alcohol? Probably not. I, I know that a glass of cold sparkling water is incredibly ref- refreshing for me and I will feel relaxed. It is a normal part of my day. That's a habit too. Um, so anyways, you just need to think about why you're doing things. And as we've been talking about before, that app you that app reframe you mentioned could be quite handy. Just the intentionality of what you do, thinking about the reasons why you do things, that's incredibly helpful. It has been shown from a psychological perspective to be more effective than some alternatives. Um, you just tell people the negative outcomes. They're like, mm, yeah, I'm sure that's true, but uh, that doesn't affect me today and it doesn't affect me this week. So mm-hmm. it's hard, it has less of an impact. But if you just get people to focus on the now, mm-hmm. Um, because that's very much what the serotonin and dopamine are. It's all about the now. If you focus on the now more, if you are mindful about your choices and you make that a habit, then this can turn things around. And I don't think that drastic changes are necessarily the way unless you're trying to go cold turkey and you want to figure out how dependent you are on these habits. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if anything, let's get back to something that is very immediate and that's the hangover and how do you avoid that sure i mean i think hangovers they actually account for billions of dollars a year in lost productivity in america alone yeah no kidding so you can imagine what it's costing globally and not everybody who has a hang who gets a hangover is a problem drinker you just overindulged but i think mm-hmm. um and that can just have it that can happen almost unexpectedly right sometimes that can be three or four drinks uh or, you know, depending on your, your tolerance and your frequency, it can maybe even be less than that. But I think avoiding them is certainly a step toward feeling better and avoiding some of the worst short and long-term after effects of drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, just find, find your threshold. What's your tolerance level? What, at what point can you not exceed on either number of drinks or what types of drinks or how you're mixing them? Uh, that may be one aspect is is just set that as a goal all right i don't want to be hung, hung over this month right then how do you accomplish that what do you do to to avoid that my big thing is i mean i one of my hobbies is is using the toilet so if i'm not using the toilet enough then i drink more water um while i'm out drinking if i haven't taken at least three or four bathroom breaks by the time we're in our sec our second stop of the night then i'm clearly not hydrating enough but the other thing is I, I have learned, and because it is a professional endeavor for me, I've learned that craft beer, anything over 5% alcohol, I can imbibe far less of that than I could in my 30s and certainly less than in my 20s uh, because it'll bring on a very quick hangover. I'll start to get a headache the same night. Like I'll start to get this early creeping unease at the top of my cranium. I'm like, oh, damn. And that's when I get like the fourth uh, imperial IPA in my stomach. My body is like sending warning signs. No, abort, abort. This is not a good path to take. Uh, For whatever reason, my stomach and my liver don't like to process whatever the congeners are in, in those beers anymore. And I know I need to really increase the amount of water that I'm taking in at the same time. But also cucumber, which we've talked about a little bit on several episodes, cucumber being the day off, the dry day, and mm-hmm. to intentionally put that into every week to at least once. Um, and the more, the better, obviously, but overall to just to space out the days where you're drinking, also to, to space out the time between each drink. I mean, it really goes from the macro to the micro here. 
Sure. Yeah, the cucumber is sometimes referred to as a liver holiday. You're giving your your body a rest, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think it's it's definitely worth doing. And a friend of mine actually was a in medical school, and he was curious about his liver function. So he did a liver function test after a night of heavy drinking, and it showed altered liver function. And then he uh, he was sober for 24 hours, and he took another liver function test, and it was back to normal. Now he yeah. was also 23, 24 years old when he did that. Uh, so your recovery might be slower as you get older, uh, but the liver can recover. You you aren't doing necessarily permanent damage, uh, but giving it a giving it a rest helps it recover, heal itself, start to break down some of those other toxins, and and keep you healthier. So, uh, cucumber is a great idea. The other thing for me, I mean, I think for a lot of people, probably it's like uh, you know, like it's as you mentioned, it's Friday when we're recording this. It's TGIF, right? As yeah. soon as you finish the workday, you want to you want to grab a beer. You want to you want to grab a cocktail. You want you want to drink, right? And that's not necessarily just on Friday for a lot of people. That that can be a, a daily occurrence. At the end of the workday, you're just ready to have a drink. And I used to do that, and that was part of why I came up with that New Year's resolution: is I wanted to break my beer at the end of the workday habit. So yeah. I did. I don't crave a beer at the end of the workday. The problem is now I want to make a cocktail, <laughs> and that's Damn sugar. It. Right. That's artificial sugar. And it would almost be better for me to go back to beer. But what I'd prefer is that I don't immediately reach for a drink at the end of the workday. Right. Mm. Um, so I ended up breaking my beer habit, but I started a new habit. And now now that I'm counting my drinks, I'm being aware of what I'm doing. It's it's that mindful drinking, as you mentioned. Yeah. I think twice before I reach for a drink when I finish work. Uh and I think that's going to be helpful. I mean, I've only been, it's with, you know, early January right now, middle of January. So we'll see how this all plays out. But it's, it's been, I feel like a positive change so far. Just that small uh, thing of counting your number of drinks, being aware. Yeah. Well, this year I'm on a dry martini January. Maybe I, next year I'll try to do a semi-arid January. But, um, <laughs> you know, this is the Japan Distilled podcast. And this episode has been about alcohol consumption more broadly. So why don't we bring it back to our roots? Yeah, and of course, we should talk about how Japanese spirits specifically can aid with some of what we've already talked about. Um, mm -hmm. But before we do that, I want to do an experiment. I want us each to shoot one ounce of a 40% ABV spirit. Bad um, influence. That's, that's 30 milliliters approximately. So uh, basically one unit of a 40% alcohol, because 40% is the threshold for what's usually considered spirits in most traditions. For example, whiskey has to be at least 40% alcohol to be classified as whiskey in America. Uh, so I decided let's just uh, both do a shot at 40% alcohol. Okay. Um, you got something? I do. Yeah. I have uh, a shot of, and I feel bad. Sh I don't feel bad. I just would not normally shoot something like this, but I have... 30 milliliters of Benny Sango. Oh, you're going strong. Nice. I like it. That's a, why don't you tell us about Benny, Benny Sango for a second? Ben, Benny Sango is an award-winning Kokuto sugar shochu that's lightly barrel aged. It's got a really nice balance of light oak and some of the things that we recognize as being uh, oak adjacent aromas like cherry and vanilla along with the tropical sweetness from the the cane sugar-derived kokuto, it's, uh, or cane juice-derived anyway, and it's a really lovely 40% ABV spirit. Excellent choice. Uh, I went in a different direction. I'm actually having uh, Horizon. Oh, nice. The 40% koji uh, rice distillate. They don't call it a shochu, but made in Georgia. Um, I just looked at my, my shelf, and that was the first one I saw that was 40%. Uh, atmospheric pot distilled, really nice uh, drinker. We should have them on the show, actually. Absolutely. We should have them on for an interview. Maybe that's one of our 2023 goals. Mm -hmm. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to count down. And when I say go, we shoot. And as we shoot, I'm going to start my stopwatch. Okay. And I want you to tell me when you're feeling an alteration in your feelings or your mood or your abilities. Okay. And I'll time it for myself as well. So whoever first feels something, just you know, interrupt stop mid-sentence, whatever you need to do. We're going to see how long it takes for this 40% alcohol standard unit shot to reach our brains and start to change how we're feeling. Okay. Okay. Got it. You in? I'm in. Yep. All right. 
This is for research, folks. So don't judge us. <laughs> this is <All> science. Right. <laughs> when I say go. All right. Okay. Three, yep. two. Sorry, I didn't have the stopwatch ready. Yeah, and you didn't say go. So I didn't. No, not yet. Good. Let me get the <laughs> clock up. All right. Okay. Here we go. All right. Three, two, one, go. <sighs> mm. Ooh, toasty. Okay. That, that was nice going in. And it immediately became mm-hmm. alcohol as it went down. Yep. Hmm. I haven't yeah. shot anything in a long time. Oh, I haven't done really shot in years. I got in an argument with some people in a bar um, in Fukuoka not too long ago who got really angry because I wouldn't play along with their whole sh- shoot this this uh, 30 mil thing of incredibly good alcohol. It's like, no, that's alcohol abuse. I want to enjoy it. <laughs> they got so angry. Sure. That was the end of my socialization with them for that evening. I can imagine. All right. All right. So, um, yeah, back to our roots, I guess, right? Yeah, back to the topic. Uh, so let's start by dispelling one myth. I've heard it from shochu makers, from educators and consumers alike, that shochu doesn't give you a hangover. True or false? I totally understand why they say that. It's multiple reasons. But my take on this is that it's BS. Ethanol is ethanol. Of course, less alcohol per drink, so you kind of feel that your your safe allowance, the distance you can travel before you get to the danger zone, feels further. And of course, a traditional serving size in Japan is an Ichigo or 180 mils. So at 25% ABV, that's about three ounces of a 50% ABV alcohol, like a bonded whiskey. Yeah. I guess is is probably this very simple napkin math there, but right, yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And I am going to say uh, I lasted a full uh, one minute eighteen seconds before I felt altered from my shot. Okay, um, I don't know if you because you were speaking, maybe it didn't you didn't notice because I was listening to you. I felt this wave of calm. Oh, interesting. That's that that was the first sense of oh something changed. It's only one shot. There will probably be other changes that I'll feel. In a little bit more time, but that's how long it took me to feel that first hit, the first hit of that dopamine and serotonin. I had a um, a CAT scan one time, and it it was they were doing some rel- relatively serious um, tests, and part of the test was they were uh, tracing something in my bloodstream. So they they injected a I don't know I guess it shows up as a specific color. Mm-hmm during the CAT scan and they said, it's going to, it's going to burn a little bit or you're going to get really hot, but don't worry. That's normal. Basically there was a countdown when they released this into the, you know, through the catheter into, into my bloodstream. And I could feel it moving as it pumped through my heart to the, to the rest of my body. It was, it took seconds for it to go Mm. all the way up into the base of my head Mm. And up into my brain, I could feel it go up the sides of my neck Wow! and all the way down my body. It was amazing. It was wild. And if they hadn't warned me, I would have freaked out. Oh, no doubt. But it was a very clear experience of how quickly something that's in your, in your system gets pumped all the way around. It was, Mm -hmm. it took seconds. Now, obviously, obviously if something goes into your, into your mouth, you will absorb it into your bloodstream through your mouth. But you'll also absorb it um, through your stomach. It takes a little bit longer if you're not injecting it, obviously. Right. But still, it's going to be pretty fast. Minute 18 makes perfect sense. That was for me. I don't know if, if you felt uh, something similar, but that was, uh, yeah, pretty fast. And you're right. It, once it gets to your stomach, that's where a lot of the absorption happens. And then it gets into the bloodstream. And I'm sure by now my liver is starting to interact with it. Already. Right. It's probably circulated through once and... And that's just how quick it is, right? We're now four and a half minutes yep. since, uh, since we took that shot. But I guess if you think about it, like three ounces of whiskey, like bonded whiskey, going back to your earlier back of the napkin math. Oh, uh, yeah. That would hit you hard. <laughs> yeah. Right? Sure. <laughs> that's an Ichigo, 180 ml of, of, uh, of shochu at 25% alcohol. But I think it would hit, shochu would probably tend to hit you less hard if you drank that quantity, even though it's 180 versus 90 because of the congeners. This is the important point. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but you want to naturally, and, and I, I hesitate to go too far down this path because that's one claim to fame for vodka has always been 
the the no hangover thing, right? Mm -hmm. Why is that? And it's because they distill the crap out of that stuff so that it really is just just ethanol and water at the end of the day. And while shochu and awamori are not distilled the crap out of, if if I can, I guess I need to grammatically put it that way, they do not have any additives. That is by law. You can't add anything to them. You are really dealing with a, a spirit in the bottle that while it doesn't have everything stripped out of it, except for the ethanol, like, like a vodka, mm-hmm. you really have, by comparison with a whiskey, with a rum, certainly gin, um, tequila, Korean soju, you have a, a paucity of congeners that are mm-hmm. remaining after the single pot distillation. And that means that you're giving your body, your liver, and everything else that is involved comes together as a team to protect your person from the biological effects, from the chemical effects of ethanol. You're giving it a little bit more of a head, a fighting chance, shall we say. Yeah, uh, sure. The more water you add to the, your system, the better. Because you slow it down, you slow the the requirements, the payload, the 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 amount of bandwidth that your system requires to process the ethanol. You diminish the negative effects, or you you space the negative effects out a little bit. You rambled for a while. Is that an, a side effect of your shot? That could be. It might be. <laughs> you it become be. verbose. You become verbose. <laughs> oh, that's that's certainly a side effect. That's a that's a side effect of me waking up. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously. Um, with without any additives and no sugar, you're biologically reducing the amount of work your body has to do to process everything. Remember how your liver has to work extra hard to process ethanol, uh, and then it's it's byproduct. But I'm not going to try to pronounce mm-hmm. again. <laughs> well, it's busy doing that. It can't process sugar, as I mentioned before. And so that sugar gets stored as fat. The more sugar you're ingesting while you're drinking, the more will go to your waistline. And it's not really a one plus one equals two equation. It's actually, it's worse than that. Yep. And, you know, alcohol's calories are what are known as empty calories, quote unquote, meaning they contain no real nutritional value and a regular drinker may get up to 10% of their daily calories just from drinking. So an alcoholic may get, geez, a full 50%, maybe half of their daily caloric intake from the alcohol. So the less overall ethanol that you consume per drink, the better off you're going to be. And I hope that goes without saying, but this is, of course, again, we're tying in where shochu and aomori can be beneficial. And this was, of course, the idea behind Oita and Miyazaki reducing their ABVs to 20% for shochu when the rest of Japan was still at 25. Less alcohol meant less drunk driving because people in those rural prefectures took the zero booze behind the wheel laws as, shall we say, suggestions? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, completely fair. That was definitely a problem, even until the relatively recent past. Uh, drinking and driving here in Kyushu with shochu was, you know, a pretty big problem. But that seems to have largely resolved itself. Today, Japan is far less drinking and driving uh, than it did in the past because the punishments are so severe. You get caught yeah. drinking and driving, not even having an accident, right? Just drinking and driving. You lose your job. You lose your license. You're done. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And if you injure yep. or kill somebody, you're looking at prison, actual yep. prison. Mm-hmm. So as a result, in 2021, the most recent year for which we have data available, there were 152 traffic fatalities due to drunk driving in Japan. That's a country That's for the whole country. 25 million people. Yep. And in the US, there were over 10,000. 152 it's estimated. versus 10,000. Yeah. And it's estimated that 28 people die every day on roads in the United States due to drunk driving. And that means more Americans die every week due to drunk driving than Japanese in a year. And that is nuts. Yeah, it's mind boggling. I mean, strict enforcement seems to work, at least in a culture like 
Japan's, and maybe this is a lesson for other countries. When I was a kid, I remember the the drunk driving. This is what I was told anyway. The drunk driving enforcement, the DUI and DWI enforcement was much stricter in Vermont where I grew up when I was studying to get my driver's license, which was a, a high school class. We were taken to a prison where we heard directly from people who had been in prison for um, basically death resulting from drunk driving. They were, they were in prison because they had killed somebody when they were drinking and they talked about how quickly your life can unravel due to one bad decision. And I don't know that it's still that as strict as it was back in the 90s when I was doing my driver's education class, but that was pretty effective. That put the fear in us that this is a normal person that is in their 20s who screwed up, got behind the wheel of a car and killed somebody <laughs> and now is doing um 15 to 25 yeah that's that's a that's a rough end of the night for everyone involved everyone i mean obviously for the victim and their family it's it's absolutely devastating but uh it's it's no joke and uh yeah sobering even after a shot at horizon yeah (laughs) anyway we got a little bit uh, out out there on this a little far afield we're we're talking about other ways japanese spirits can of course help us to manage our drinking behaviors in a healthy way let's head back to that you got anything else yeah so i i recently had this experience where i didn't want to drink a lot but i was out with a shochu maker and uh, uh another guest and i was really kind of not feeling it you know we had the the, the kampai beer at the beginning fortunately we shared one one bottle of beer among the four of us. Uh-huh. And then we right. got a, we got a, uh, we got an Ichigo of sake of the local sake to try. But again, that was split among four of us. Mm-hmm. And then they broke out the Kurajoka, the, the small oh. Maiwari pot and put it over an open flame on the tabletop. And that's splitting 180 milliliters of, of, of diluted shochu. So not 25% showed you that's like 12 and a half maybe 13 14 depending on what the dilution was and that's being shared by four people over a leisurely meal i think we had over the course of a two-hour meal we had three of those three pots three pots among four people so we each had less than 90 ml of shochu um, right after a quarter of a beer and a quarter of a of a of an ichigo of sake i felt fine uh-huh. Both afterward and, you know, they didn't, didn't, I didn't have any adverse reaction to that. And I was sober when I got home, I had a good night's sleep and I realized, well, if you don't drink the whole drink yourself, if you share it and you take time doing it with good conversation and good food, it can be a wonderful right. experience without the downstream effects. So that for yeah. me, it just really struck me that, oh yeah, this is a way we should be encouraging people to drink and enjoy these, you know, these spirits. That's absolutely one of my favorite ways to enjoy shochu and awamori is the communal aspect of it, pouring for each other and paying attention to how much is left in each other's glass. And the conversation, there's a connectedness that is invited by that traditional style of enjoying these drinks. Um, we were in Okinawa with some some friends of ours that we invited down there in October and just and introduced them to of course the karakara and chibugwa tradition or culture that is part of the awamori world and the history of that drink and its genesis in in the Ryukyu Islands and it was really fun and I think probably one of the highlights of that experience for everyone was these tiny little thimble sized cups that we were drink sipping from and we were sipping actually pretty high octane awamori always over 40% abv extensively aged but there was a real visceral enjoyment to just the intentionality of each one of those sips the the focus on what was in the cup the sharing of that experience the way that everybody was connected because of that and how while that experience is replicable 
it'll never be the same because it'll never be the same people in the same place with the same the same drink and i i think that's a a really beautiful aspect of the drinking culture here that uh you know has sort of been left by the wayside and hopefully we can introduce to folks in other parts of the world because it's a lot of fun you're you're absolutely correct that was a wonderful evening we tried so many different awamori, but because each of us were drinking out of basically almost teaspoon-sized cups, and you would take several sips per pour, it wasn't right. a shot, yeah. right? And yeah. you, you might nurse that that little teaspoon worth of awamori for three, four, five, even ten minutes if you got distracted and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And even like as it sat in your cup and it oxidized, it was exposed to the air, it would change. And that focused, that that uh, attention to the drink, right? That mindful drinking was a really lovely experience. And it's something that I think we should try, try to do more of. Um, and maybe to switch gears a little bit, another thing that I think about when it comes to shochu and to a lesser degree, awamori, is the vacuum distilled distillate. It has many fewer congeners than the atmospheric stuff because less stuff comes over in the still. And sure. I've certainly had evenings where I've stayed on vacuum distilled shochu for the session and I'm fine the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more when I start to mix or I get into the heavier, more congener laden sweet potato shochu and that sort of thing that I might not feel as good the next day. But the vacuum distillation certainly contributes. You're getting closer to that vodka, right? That pure ethanol experience when you, when you use the vacuum still. Yeah, I think I've I've noticed that as certainly when you are drinking something that's almost almost not filtered as well. Mm-hmm. Um there's a difference between the unfiltered sweet potato shochu, yeah, the shinshu, <laughs> and then uh the something that's been more processed or post-processed. Uh you definitely notice a difference the next day and while I rarely drink enough to really feel it if i'm drinking only shochu or awamori uh the next day there are days when i certainly notice that i drank the night before i can still feel that i just don't feel hungover in the classic sense i just Mm -hmm. feel maybe a little bit lethargic a little heavy and uh, definitely not tip top in terms of my condition sure but um if i add in enough of the very lightly filtered or unfiltered shochu then that can kind of tip in the other in the slightly heavier direction where um you're you're kind of dragging and i might not i may not even have a headache but i definitely can feel it i can tell i did not sleep particularly well my body was working overtime even when my eyes were closed to process all of the the stray information that i fed into it and uh you know, it's definitely something to consider when you're, ch- when you're picking your poison. Yeah, no doubt. And, and that's what I do, you know, obviously, and I, I realize we should do an episode on Shinshu, but Shinshu has so many high esters and volatiles that dissipate. Uh, and that's where like with Shinshu, I really can't have more than a glass. If I have more than one glass in a given evening, I am not happy later. So, um, <laughs> but yep. your mileage may vary. Um, sure. listen, this was good. This was a long one. This may be the longest episode that the two of us have done together, but I think it was worthwhile. I, I hope that people found it, uh, useful, interesting. I hope it helps you think about your relationship with alcohol and, and how to do that healthily or as healthily as possible, uh, while still enjoying and being able to, uh, experience these wonderful drinks. I think I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> Yep. Well, it's uh, still early enough in the afternoon. So, well, now it's kind of late afternoon. Yeah. Go take a 15 minute nap. Cheers. Well, (laughs) thank you everybody for listening. If you have not already done so, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to your podcast content. It really helps others find the show. And please feel free to reach out to us on either Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. And you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for show notes on this and every episode. And please tune into our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday every Tuesday evening. 
at 8 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up,